This is the current federal tax developments for the week of September the 12th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers and we're coming to you again this week from Phoenix. And we are going to be this week, of course, running into that wonderful first absolute deadline for our pass-through entities. But even with that, some things happened this week. So we'll talk about this week. First, want to briefly go over a bill that's now moving to the Senate floor. This was moved to the Senate floor. It unanimously passed the Senate Finance Committee a while back. It's had some minor modifications, but it was sent to the floor with the blessing of both the chair and the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, which means we have a fairly bipartisan bill here. So we're going to talk about what's effectively referred to as Secure 2, but officially is what's called the EARN Act here, but it really is an add-on to the SECURE Act we got at the end of 2019, and we'll talk some about what they're talking about doing in that act. We're also going to talk about a story that got a lot of press, which is the IRS inadvertently managed to make available for bulk download 990T information that wasn't limited to entities that are 501c3 organizations, but included other exempt organizations such as individual retirement accounts that filed a 990T. So we'll talk a little bit about the nature of that uh, breach, what's involved with it, and what you might want to do with your clients to at least be ready for the fact that some of them may be told that their data was, in essence, made public in this form, and you may need to discuss with them what steps they may or may not want to take. We'll also talk about a court case that dealt with reasonable cause for failure to file or pay a return, failure to file a return on time, or failure to pay the tax when due. And we'll talk about what does and does not constitute reasonable cause, specifically in this case, the taxpayer loss, because the court found that what they had were rather common financial challenges, which the court felt did not rise to the level necessary for one to have reasonable cause for failing to timely file the return or timely pay the tax. Let's start with the bill I discussed, because again, we just got done with uh, the Reconciliation Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which of course passed on very strictly party-line votes. This one is looking like one that could pass on a much broader vote. This is the Enhancing American Retirement Now, or EARN Act. It came down on September the 8th of 2022 to be sent to the Senate floor. Now again, We'll have to see how quickly leadership moves it to the floor. Do they try to get it through before they leave town? Or do they wait and try to pick it up in a lame duck session after the election? So we'll need to kind of take a look at that. But it was unanimously approved by the Senate Finance Committee back in June. But it was held back because obviously the Senate was working on the reconciliation package. And it was obvious that leadership was not going to schedule any votes on this bill until those other issues got dealt with. Now, the updated version that came with the blessings from both Senator Wyden, who is the chair of the uh, Senate Finance Committee, and Senator Crapo, who is the ranking Republican member of the committee, and which, as I said, passed unanimously, uh, that was sent to the floor, and they're looking to try to get this thing moved to the floor, passed, and then reconciled. The House had already passed a similar but not identical bill, by 414 to 5 margin earlier this year. Now, after that passed, there was some opposition that started developing among certain progressive lawmakers 
who were concerned that a lot of these features primarily benefit well-to-do individuals. Uh, you know, so we'll see if we continue to have this sort of overwhelming support. But my guess is that there may be some of them who will hold back their votes. Probably, though, it will not be enough to kill it unless there is some opposition coming that's broader based than what we've heard about so far. This is a 258-page bill, and a 15-page summary was issued by the Senate Finance Committee. Now, let's talk about some of the provisions that we found in that bill. So that particular bill, whoops, as I try to get everything, there I go. I've got control of the screen. Now, again, to get that, we have a couple of things. First thing is they're going to, again, basically modify, again, a special safe harbor section that would allow a small employer to establish 401k plan and not have to worry about the, uh, basically, the testing, the ACE ADP testing routines, that they'd be deemed non-discriminatory. In this case, a plan would require you to put in place a plan that would, by default, uh, re, you know, make con have employer employee contributions of 6% unless the employee specifically elects a different amount in the first year increased by 1% per year until the fifth or later years, and then that would make the default at least 10% by that year. It would require employer matching contributions there of 100% of the first 2% of the deferral, 50% of the next 4%, and 20% of the next 4%. So essentially, you know, it would be a decreasing level of matching. The idea of that is to encourage employees to at least put something away uh, but not give extra benefits, supposedly, to those who could afford to put the max amount away or to put away at least the uh, the largest part here. We talk about this uh, deferral. So, again, it wouldn't be required, but it would be something that employers could pick up on. We also would have uh, some special rules that be matching payments for elected deferrals and IRA contributions by certain individuals. It would give us a credit for this by the government doing that. It would also require that that credit for retirement plans, this is a credit for retirement plan contributions that, that various individuals qualify for. This required those funds to go back into a IRA account or retirement plan. So in essence, it would no longer be cash handed to the employee. It would be money going to the retirement plan. Whether that would encourage or not encourage people to make the retirement contributions more than cash in hand is an open question, but it would be what they do. We'd also see a modification of the Secure Act requirement for contributions based on for long-term part-time workers. What that's going to do right now under the Secure Act, we're going to where if a long-term part-time employee had been with the organization for at least three years, you have to let them make contributions to the plan, even though you don't have to match those contributions. You could ignore matching for those individuals without having discrimination problems. We would keep those same rules, but we would require you to let them in now after two years. Now it would be for years after 2022, so that would begin next year. Also, this has been discussed quite a bit, and there was some relief offered by the IRS for a while. We would now effectively say student loan payments as elective deferrals for purposes of matching contributions, it would allow an employer to count those as somebody pays down their student loan. You, you could make a matching contribution to the 401k plan uh, in order to, that would be a way to you know, encourage those who have these loans, they're trying to get repaid, to go ahead and 
you know, still be part of the plan. The understanding being that sometimes uh, younger individuals will not contribute to the plan because they're currently trying to get their loans paid off. They would then give some credit for that. That would be the structure. We'd also have a rule that would allow a $1,000 uh, emergency expense distribution that would not be subject to the 10% additional tax under Section 72T for a premature distribution. Now, the rule would be that you can do one of these. Uh, you'd have an option to repay it within three years. And again, it's only for $1,000. So it's not going to cover anything that's huge, but it would cover up to 1000 Again, it would appear this is clearly there for those who are lower income and who might be concerned about not being able to get their hands on the money if something happened, like they needed you know, a car repair, something relatively minor. It would allow them to stick some savings in there and have this emergency fund of sorts would be the idea. They could repay it for up to three years. They could not take another distribution within the three-year period unless they've already repaid the first one. And it would be effective beginning in 2024. Um, some other issues were going to be here. Uh, we could allow additional non-elective contributions to certain simple plans, modify them. We'd have some various uh, index, some incentives. We would also have an IRA owner, the IRA indexing limit, the IRA catch-up limit would be indexed. We'd also have now go up to $10,000 for a catch-up limit, a qualified plan, once an individual uh, hit age 60 to 63. Uh, so they'd be able to catch it up. It would be effective after 2023. So that would raise it from the current levels of uh, 6,500 at this level to go up to that level for a simple plan, it would raise that additional catch up to 5,000, okay? We would allow uh, household employees, employ, how, employers of household employees, domestic employees, could go ahead and set up a SEP contribution on behalf of those household employees. Currently, you have to have a trader business to establish a SEP for your employees. This would allow SEPs to be set up for that issue. We have, again, this is part of all the 15-page uh, update. Obviously, if they actually pass the bill, we're going to want to look at the details here, but this gives you some idea there. We'd also, again, weigh penalty-free withdrawals from retirement plans. It would be available to individuals in the case of domestic abuse. It'd be capped at $10,000 or 50% of the account balance if lesser uh, and can be re-contributed to a tax-preferred account. The idea being that they wouldn't be subject to 10%. Now, the problem that people never understand when Congress does something like this is it's not tax-free money because you're still going to pay the regular tax that you would owe taken out of the IRA uh, or retirement plan, but you wouldn't have to pay the 10% additional tax. So that's essentially the issue involved. Uh, we would have a simplified rollover, direct rollover. The IRS would basically, or Treasury, be directed to issue sample forms for direct rollovers that can be used by both the incoming and outgoing retirement plan or IRA. One problem we have currently for such direct rollovers is you have to go find out and get the specific form from Schwab and the specific form from whoever you're sending it to. Let's say we're sending it over to Bank of America. I've got to get the right forms from each of them to do it. The idea here is that we would simplify that by having a standard issue. Uh, we would also have uh, some special rules for automatic portability transactions uh, where a, a participant account balance can be transferred, you know, under $5,000 and 
and distributable. Uh, present law says so I can roll that to an IRA. Now we would allow essentially uh, into our new employment retirement plan. Uh, you know, in this case, we print a retirement plan service provider to provide employer plans with automatic portability services. You can read about that in the guide if you want in their document from the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, one of the things which obviously is in the House bill as well, we would increase the age required beginning date for mandatory distributions from our IRAs and retirement plans would go from 72 to 75 effective after 2031. So it wouldn't happen right away. It would be 2031. But those who have not attained age 72 by that date, which means essentially those born in 1959 or later, would be able to move their retirement dates up to when they reach, eight, not retirement dates, but their mandatory distributions up to age 75, not age 72. Okay. We have in, on those issues. Um, one change that I think is probably more negative, even though it sounds like a positive, currently if a taxpayer fails to t take the requirement of distributions from an IRA or retirement plan, there is a 50% additional tax. This provision would reduce the tax rate to 25% and reduce the rate to 10% if the minimum distribution is taken in within a correction period no later than the end of the second year following year in which a distribution should have been made. It would be effective after the date of enactment. The problem with that is currently, I don't know what your experience has been, my experience has been that the IRS has always granted waiver of the 50% penalty. I'm concerned that if we get this in place, when a distribution is missed, you're going to have to pay the 10%. Again, a 10% penalty doesn't seem as onerous as a 50% penalty. And that 10% is already relief compared to the standard 25% penalty. So kind of by definition, I suspect that instead of not ever paying the penalty, which is the reality today for most taxpayers that aren't intentionally trying to avoid getting money out of the IRA and just hoping the IRS never notices, we instead will end up with a 10% penalty when this is overlooked. I know in theory, the reasonable cause provision will probably stay there, but I have a feeling the IRS will be not nearly as apt to allow a reasonable cause exception in this case. Again, a number of things. I'm just trying to hit some of the highlights here. Uh, we would eliminate a pre-death distribution requirement for Roth accounts in employer plans. Currently, while you don't have to make a during life distribution uh, from a Roth IRA for an individual once they hit the required beginning date, in an employer retirement plan, we're still subject to those minimum distribution rules unless we can roll it out into a Roth IRA. Well, this would eliminate that requirement in the retirement plan, allowing the funds to remain in the retirement plan. We also would index the qualified charitable distribution amount from IRAs. It's been $100,000, not indexed for inflation. This would index it beginning in 2024. And it also add what's kind of an odd rule here, but you could have a one-time $50,000 distributions to charities through charitable gift annuities, charitable remainder unit trusts, and charitable remainder annuity trusts. Now, my guess is charitable gift annuities, that might make sense. Uh, but the other two, unless you have other funds going in besides the 50 grand here, it's really difficult to see how this 
just makes sense. The cost of running one of those, unless you're, you know, just let, you know, the charity is setting it up for you and administering it, is going to be a little messy, right? It's going to cost more to run it than it's probably going to be worth at only $50,000 going over. So for better or worse, obviously we could do that. What that does, obviously, with a charitable remainder, any of these charitable gift annuities, unit trusts, or annuity trusts, would allow the 50000 to go over, and then some payout would come back to the owner of the account based on that transfer over to the charitable gift annuity, the charitable unit trust, or the annuity trust. We would also have the Congress, they seem to love in this bill getting rid of 10% additional taxes. And they'd also get rid of a 10% additional tax if a distribution to a terminally ill individual. Again, still taxable, the distribution is, but there wouldn't be an additional 10%. Also, the law would allow a surviving spouse to elect to be treated as a deceased employee for purposes of the retirement required minimum distribution rules. Currently, the basically, the surviving spouse has to go ahead and elect to have the entire account transferred into an IRA in that person's name, or if it is an IRA, they, they rename it to their name. This would seem to allow us to keep funds in the, in the employer plan, assuming the employer wanted that to happen, which I think very few do, unless you're a control, unless it's a very, very small plan and the covered people here are the owners. In any event, uh, it would still though allow it to be kept in there beginning after 2023. They would also allow up to $2,500 per year to be, uh, to be distributed uh, for payments of long-term care insurance premiums. They'd be exempt from the 10% tax on early distributions. And you know that's basically what is, again, getting, getting younger people to decide to take it out. Obviously, if you're over age 59 and a half, doesn't really matter. It would still be a taxable distribution. Nothing in here seems to suggest they won't make it taxable. There are some special rules for public safety offer and military. You might want to take a look at there if you have clients that are heavy into those areas. Also, special rules for plans covering not-for-profits and educators. So if you have 403B situations, you can look there. We'd get a standard set of rules for the use of retirement plans in case of a disaster. You may remember that we've had in multiple times in the past, including COVID, where we've been allowed special rules for use of retirement funds and being able to put them back in and include over income over three years. Well, we'd put that now permanently into the law, and that'd be for disasters that occurred after January 26, 2021, which is an interesting date, but we'll accept that. Uh, we have some employer plan issues here, some changes there. And again, uh, the big thing I think there is an expansion of the IRS's employee plans compliance resolution system that simplifies fixing plan problems. They would expand it in addition to doing some general expansions in that area, it would also be able to do failures with regard to IRAs, could be covered under that program. So there'd be an automatic fix for not taking your required minimum distribution. And unfortunately, you know, not, not sure how they'd word that, what's going on here, would it be additional relief below the 10% or we already got that special rule that would give us a 10% penalty I'm, you know, I'm not, not quite sure how they do that or if it seems to go back a number of years that could threaten qualification. Maybe they've got, maybe that would help in that regard. Okay. 
We would also have some changes to the family attribution rule, specifically getting one that sometimes backdoor causes problems with people. Uh, first thing is they would clarify that an individual community property state is not treated as owning shares in a business owned by his or her spouse because of their community share and also would disaggregate two businesses if the only common ownership link is on account of attribution of parental ownership to a child or on account of the stock option held by a minor child to acquire ownership in either business. Uh, that, that's a problem that I've talked with plan administrators who talk, yeah, that often gets overlooked, especially by people doing do-it-themselves plans, that you know, if, if you've got a child, you know, especially for divorced parents, that you know, the ownership by a child, the ownership from parent A attributes back to child, and that therefore brings in, you know, parent B is deemed to own those shares, even though they're no longer married to the other spouse, to the spouse, they still have the kid there, and we could have some problems there. This would change after 2023. We'd also increase the contribution limits for simple IRAs uh, for employer with no more than 25 employees. That'd be effective after 23, that we'd have those issues, a number of special uh, credits would be established to encourage businesses to set up such plans. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, especially, you know, notice issues. Now, we do have one technical correction that's probably important going back to SECURE Act. Qualified birth or adoption distributions, we may remember that you were allowed to repay them. Uh, Unfortunately, in that bill, unlike later when they did the CARES Act and figured out, yeah, they kind of fouled this up. Uh, you, you know, the theory there was you always could put a qualified birth or adoption distribution back into the plan. But if you didn't do so within three years, the problem was you almost you almost you basically tended to have a problem of the statutes closed to get the refund on the original payment in. So not not wanting to explain that as to why you, you couldn't get the money back, even though you put the back in the account. We're now going to limit it so you've got to put that money back in within three years. That, that would be involved in that issue. Some other money-raising options here. Uh, first thing is the provision would permit an employee uh, participating in a simple IRA plan or a SEP to elect to treat both their elective deferrals and employer contributions as after-tax Roth contributions beginning in 2024. Uh, we would also require catch-up contributions with an employee retirement plan to be made as after-tax Roth contributions, effective after 2024. So if you make that bigger catch-up contribution, great, but there's not going to be a current tax deduction. It would be a Roth contribution. That obviously raises revenue by reducing the deduction. And similarly, the provision would print an employee to elect to treat any employer matching or other employer contributions to a plan as after-tax Roth contributions, effective after 2023. Now, again, none of this has been passed into law currently. Uh, it may never be passed into law, so keep that in mind. But you might want to be aware, you know, just kind of keep your eye on this, because if it does pass, given how much, given the support it had in the House, I suspect that if it does pass the Senate, it could very quickly move to conference, to the House, and back to a vote. And it could become the law very quickly, in which case then we'll have a whole nother bill we're going to have to look at uh, prior to doing all of our tax planning coming up. So keep your eye on this bill. It looks like we have at least a reasonable chance that this particular bill will go somewhere. 
Okay, let's go ahead now and talk about some other things that happened here. Uh, first thing is we have a letter here from uh, Anna Canfield Roth, uh, which is going, which essentially is a is a letter that explains. Uh, we kind of sent a few things, made them public available for public download that we shouldn't have. Right, this came out. Uh, on the 2nd of September, the letter was issued to the chair of the House Homeland Security Committee because that's who has to be notified if a federal agency has such a, you know, event where they have exposed data that shouldn't have been exposed to the public. What they ended up doing was the IRS has a website that you, as you may be aware, the Form 990 information generally is required to be made public by the IRS. And what they do is they post it in full electronic form, because again, we have e-filing now for 990s, generally is required to be done that way. So because of that, you can go in there and literally download the XML information from every single 990. And that's done on a per year basis. Uh, you know, it is on the IRS's website uh, and there are various bulk series downloads. And if you go get it, You'll, you'll grab the exit, you'll grab a data file. There is, the first file is a CSV file that'll give you a choice to download. And that, that gives you a list of all of the 990s that are in that, that, are in that year's capture because it's captured by year filed. And then within that, within that category, they're going to have a whole series of zip files that take you know, groups of all of these and pull them together. So at the end of the day, you may have eight different zip files, which will have, you know, a ton of these individual XML files for each organization. So that's the nature of the stuff. Now, XML files, if you're not aware of what they are, the first thing is they're actually what you use for electronically filing the individual tax returns, corporate tax returns, anything like that. Anything under modernized e-file uses the XML schemas. And XML is just a structured form. It is roughly, very loosely based on HTML but a structured format of data with tags and information and defined uses for the items. And that enables organizations to essentially reassemble and get data out of there in a standard form. If you know the schema, you can reassemble it in standard form. That, that's how certain organizations can produce a, you know, on, as if they were on a paper form 990, you know, the 990 for each of these organizations that's in this download. Well, somehow it got noticed. The IRS discovered was what we're told in the letter. We're not told how it was discovered. My guess is there's a really good chance that one of the organizations, you know, because there's a lot of organizations that report information on charities, do testing, you know, attempt to determine, you know, give, give you a score based on how much of the funds going to the charity, went to actual programs versus how much gone to fundraising and they analyze the 990 data for that. I wouldn't be surprised if one of those organizations took a look and said, hey, wait a minute, why do I see a 990T here for this individual retirement account? And I see a few of these, a bunch of these I'm seeing, you know, when I look through this data. Well, at the end of the day, the IRS discovered that, oh yeah, there's this problem. Now, again, as I said, it was available and it's not that difficult to understand XML, but I doubt the average person looking at one uh, would be able to quickly, you know, unless you knew exactly that was it and what you're going for, 
it'd be a little tough to grab, but these organizations obviously found these 990Ts and like, this is not a 501c3 organization. Well, yeah, they got in there. While the 501c3's 990T data should have been available, the 990Ts for non-501c3s should not. That was, that was the big problem. So they noticed it, and by September 2nd, you know, under the federal law, they had to notify the chair of the House Homeland Security Committee and essentially, you know, remove the data, if at all possible, from wherever the breach had occurred. So this stuff got posted. My understanding is it is still not up back up yet. Didn't appear to be when I checked there. Uh, but it should be back up sometime soon, shall we say, without that data. Now, the thing you should realize is they are going to notify entities that had their data exposed. Now, those entities can include individual retirement accounts that had excess, you know, unrelated business income and had to pay the UBI tax and so filed a 990T. I would suggest if you have clients that you know have filed such documents that you go back and take a look at the ones. It looks like 2021 uh, was the year that was kind of messed up, may have included some stuff filed in 22, but it appears 21's the problem. Uh, and take a look at what's on the 990 that was actually filed in that time frame to see what kind of data has been potentially made public. Now, I understand clients are going to freak out about this uh, simply because, you know, people do, but I think also a lot of us know that, uh, yeah, data breaches are unfortunately the thing we see all the time. So I'm not saying it's good the IRS fouled this up. It's definitely not. But it's also not going to be the first data breach that any of these people have been affected by. Right? You might have remembered our nice big credit union problem, or not credit union, but credit bureau problem a couple of years ago. Right? And then you had the various insurance companies. And so, in essence, I don't know about you, but I've, I've been told multiple times, oh, your data was made public. Now, this data does not include Social Security numbers does not include addresses, but does include financial information, such as very likely includes information on, let's say, the partnerships that the IRA had invested in, also whose IRA it was. So even though I don't have their ID number, their social, I've got information about them, which obviously could be very useful to certain third parties uh, that, that might like to publicize that data. Remember, we are, de we are deep in the election cycle so it, it would be, you know, you might find something embarrassing about what they had invested in, despite the positions they may have taken in public. So there are various ways, you know, that this data could be used. So you may want to discuss, you know, what actions, if any. Uh, this data could also theoretically at least be used because you would know certain things about the person. Knowing certain things about a person can make it easier to, especially if you use social engineering on a on an other organization to convince them that you're you, right? And, you know, or convince them that the, the fraudster is the person whose data they're trying to steal. So you might want to talk with them about the kind of data that was there, the risks it would pose to them, aside from just, yes, they'll know about your personal data, but that ship has sailed. So let's go ahead and figure out what can we do to prevent any, any harmful use of that data and try to get ahead of that. And like I say, just think about your clients who filed 990Ts, who are not 501c3 organizations, and ju just assume they are likely to be contacted by the IRS and just let them know ahead of time what's there and potentially what's going on, okay? 
and we'll, we'll go from there. Okay, so looks good for that. Other thing we've got at this point is that we also have now a case here for United States versus concurrent. Now, this particular case, United States versus concurrent, uh, is a case from the U.S. District Court from, the, from Maryland. And it's a case where the taxpayer had unpaid taxes and failure to file penalties for a number of years. It wasn't just a few years. Now, if we look at this, they're trying to argue that. They're not arguing that they shouldn't have been taxed what they were. That's the right tax. They didn't file on time. They didn't pay on time. So that, that's where we're setting with this, right? We have this issue. But what they're trying to say is they should get out of the penalties due to reasonable cause. And one of the key problems we have is in order to get out of this penalty, you've got to show that the failure was due to reasonable cause, right? That you took reasonable steps, you acted prudently, but nevertheless, you were unable to comply with the obligation and it was not due to willful neglect. Now that means you've got to show both that, you know, you've got to come up with what would be a reasonable cause for not doing this. And then you have to show that that's the real reason why you didn't do it. Well, in this case, they argued various challenges they faced should qualify for a reasonable cause relief. They noted that they had various financial challenges during the years in question, that the husband was ill at times, and they also argued, you know, they had various other issues that took place. Okay, well, the court said, not really, that this doesn't mean. They said, while we understand that you face some financial challenges and difficulties, we notice that you still manage to do things like make charitable contributions equal to 10% of your you know, income after expenses. You actually paid for you know, various expenses for your kids, paid for a wedding for your kid, you know, paid for all these other things, right? And so it doesn't appear, you know, it would have been inconvenient. And also, you actually had significantly higher income in the last few years. These problems had all cleared up well before this, you know, the IRS went to court to collect this stuff. And you still hadn't paid this stuff off. The court said it looked more like it would have been inconvenient to have paid, but not necessarily that it would have been a huge burden. So it didn't look like you took normal activities. In fact, you didn't even know certain things. You know, you've been kind of ignoring your tax liabilities, not worrying about problems. The court said, look, the claimed reasons do not constitute reasonable cause because, you know, you clearly were able to pay these things. You just decided you wanted to make the charitable contributions instead. You wanted to pay for the wedding instead. You wanted to give gifts to your kids. You wanted to pay for these other things for your kids. And that's great, wonderful, but don't try to get out of the penalty because you clearly could have put that money toward the tax. And the court said the other big thing that suggests it was due to willful neglect well, there was a little bit that they really didn't seem to be paying attention to the tax, so it seems like they were neglecting it. But number two, once your income came back, you didn't actually make any move to start solving the problem. So it didn't look like somebody who was all gung-ho was going to pay the tax, going to take care of it. Rather, what it looks like is you just became someone who, you know, didn't pay the tax, and then like a lot of people get in this position, you just started ignoring the problem and you kind of hoped it would go away. Well, that's not reasonable cause when the IRS finally holds you into court to get out of the penalty. So, tough luck. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of September 12, 2022. Current Federal Tax Developments is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Uh, 
If you have any questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. I also monitor the connect groups for the Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, and Washington sites. So if you have a questions there, we can. I also take a look at Idaho's discussion groups. So again, we have those things. Hopefully th this week, all of your remaining partnerships, S-corporations will be taken care of. You'll get ready to move on to those trusts. Yeah, remember that's up next. Uh, and then on to individuals. And then, hey, we're done with tax season, just in time to start tax planning season. But in any event, we'll see you next week here with more things happening here on current federal tax developments.